is cross Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Welcome to the Lifeboat Hour, November 8, 2015. Thank you so much for joining us tonight as once again we tackle the deeper challenges of living in turbulent times. Mike Rupert named this show so appropriately as the Lifeboat Hour because its intent has always been to provide options to help us navigate the very rough waters of the collapse of industrial civilization, catastrophic climate change, and all of the madness that attends those. And once again, we have a really great show for you tonight. In October, the energy giant Exxon was exposed for its knowledge of global warming 30 years ago and was well aware that its activities would add to the damage. And one week ago tonight on the National Geographic TV channel, science guy Bill Nye and Arnold Schwarzenegger produced an hour special on climate grief. The fact that any mainstream TV channel would even use the words the five stages of climate grief is astounding to me. Um, you know, the exposure of Exxon, the, the climate grief TV special, both of those confirm for me that the conversation about energy and climate catastrophe is not going away, but really becoming louder by the moment. Now, last year I invited energy activist Nancy LaPlaca to come on the show and to talk to us about energy depletion and climate change, but... Since then, a great deal has changed in just one year, and so I've invited her back to take us deeper down the rabbit hole of fossil fuel and nuclear energy in terms of their devastating effects on the planet. Nancy has worked on policy issues for three decades and on electricity policy for 10 years. She served as policy advisor to an elected utilities commissioner in Arizona, uh, where they advanced for clean energy and energy efficiency. Nancy spent two years debunking so-called clean coal and carbon sequestration and two years advocating for clean energy at the Colorado Public Utilities Commission. Nancy currently lives in Durham, North Carolina, where she works for ncwarn.org and climatevoicesus.org on regulatory policy with an emphasis on natural gas, coal and solar electricity, as well as rate design and energy efficiency. Nancy has a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Drawing and Printmaking from Arizona State University, as well as a law degree. She now lives and works in North Carolina, and I'm going to let her tell you about moving from Colorado and why she chose to do so. But, Nancy, welcome back to the Lifeboat Hour. Thanks, Carolyn. It's great to be on. I appreciate your work. Um, well, it was uh, a big change moving out to the East Coast. I never thought I would, um, but I came out here to be part of changing the southeastern United States, which is really behind in terms of clean energy, or it was. Actually, you're right. Things have really changed in just a year. And out here in North Carolina, we have Duke Energy. And Duke Energy is remarkable because they're the largest utility in the country, in the U.S., and in the world. They also are one of the biggest contributors to climate change, some of the biggest climate deniers, and not only do they dump a lot of pollution on us, but they also pollute our democracy by spending lots of money. The current governor of North Carolina worked for Duke Energy for over 25 years, and one of the legislators who stopped 
solar legislation in its track this year was a former Duke Energy employee. So it's sort of the belly of the beast and a lovely place with lots of wonderful people. Yeah, so now I understand why you're working so hard against the uh, the forces of Duke Energy, and and I really understand why you made the move. So uh, you yeah. say that that electricity production has an enormous pollution footprint, and that we have other less damaging ways of generating electricity. I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, Carolyn, something that most people don't think of, but it's pretty obvious if you want a power plant is that what we burn, when we burn things, it makes a big difference. And, you know, you've got coal that comes in on railroad cars, or if you're a coastal state, maybe it's barged from South America. You know, you've got all the pollution, you've got mercury, acid rain, coal ash. So all of these costs, all of this pollution that the utilities and, frankly, any industry, you know, industrial process that, that uses dirty fuels and generates pollution, they've never had to pay the cost. And so when we look at solar and wind and geothermal and energy efficiency, we value that clean energy and we value that it's close to where we live and that it means local jobs. But unfortunately, in the current regulatory paradigm, we don't give those things any value so in other words, you, you end up with a situation where Arizona is between 4 and 5% solar, but 40 to 45% cold. They run coal plants on groundwater, which most people are just astounded. But you have a regulatory paradigm that pretends that solar doesn't have any value. It only has cost. And because all renewable types of generation, whether it's wind or solar, it gets paid for up front, and then the operating costs are virtually nothing because you don't have fuel pipelines, you know, you don't have toxic waste, nuclear waste, you don't, you know, they run themselves. They're very simple. You don't need people to run a solar PV panel, as, you know, like you would a nuclear power plant where it's quite complex and lots of people, lots of staff. So... We do have those less damaging ways, and what I, the work that I do is, frankly, it's been falling on deaf ears so far, but it's going to change because we're basically begging and pleading and filing with the regulatory agencies to please recognize that there are these other values, such as clean air, clean water, no carbon, no greenhouse gases, climate change, et cetera. And so value is only defined as profit, correct? Pretty much. I mean, definitely profit is right up there, yes. It's all about cost. What does something cost? So if you look at coal, it costs the utility three cents to make one kilowatt hour. And on average, we pay about 11, 12 cents for a kilowatt hour on our bills as consumers. But that same coal kilowatt hour that costs three cents to generate does 17 to 27 cents worth of damage. So, you know, you're talking about really a potentially absolutely staggering footprint. And that doesn't even count a lot of things, like as if we actually really disposed of coal ash the way we should. So the numbers, Carolyn, are pretty astounding. And I think that's what kind of drew me into this work 
Mm-hmm. The more I learned, the you know, the wider my eyes got and the more my jaw dropped and hit the floor. Right, and probably related to this next question of what you've just said, but you say that there's an enormous elephant in the room regarding energy, and I'd love it if you'd take time to talk about how mainstream media doesn't say much about the environmental and health effects of dirty energy and how fossil fuel energy sources, um, or how, how each fossil fuel energy source has its own dirty footprint. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, and that has changed so much, Carolyn. I mean, when I first started this work in 2006, no one even knew what you were talking about when you were talking about coal-fired electricity. Now, I mean, coal is, everybody knows coal's bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's a foregone conclusion. I mean, for, for the last 10 years, they tried to tell us that coal could be clean. Well, that that went nowhere, which anyone could tell you who looks into the physics of it for 10 minutes. And so... We started out with coal, and the thing with coal is it's it's really high profit for the utilities because they never have had to pay for the pollution. So it's only really in the last few years that they've had to start implementing emissions control. And so they pushed it off and pushed it off and pushed it off so that, you know, really up to half the coal plants in our country didn't have either none or very little emissions control. So coal is starting to shut down, which is really good, but what is ascending is natural gas. And the danger of that is you've got fracking, you've got air and water contamination from fracking, you've got leakage, you've got methane, um, you know, ask all the people who are lighting their water on fire or living in those drilling zones. You have small towns in Wyoming that for the last 20 years have had ozone as bad as L.A. because they have all these wells around that are flaring gas. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, consequences of fossil fuels. Nuclear, you know, look at Fukushima. I mean, we have nuclear waste, which, you know, has a half-life, some of those elements of 24,000 years. Right. There really is no solution to nuclear waste, unfortunately. And then you've got, you know, you've got um, people wanting to build more nuclear plants and pouring money into them when it's really just a black hole. It, it's never going to happen. Um, well, well, before we before we get too far into nuclear, um, I want to mm-hmm. I want to ask you something that just came up this week on the last two days. You know, mainstream media has been announcing that China is burning far more coal than we had imagined. What do you know about that? Well, yeah, I saw that go by, and if indeed that's true, it's 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 disappointing. I mean, but China, you know, I'm sure your listeners probably know, is extremely polluted, extremely right. polluted. It's off the charts, and they have so much less water than we do. They have one fifth the amount that we do per person. Mm. And they're getting more affected by climate change than we are, and they have far worse environmental consequences. So what people are hoping is that China will actually turn to clean energy fairly quickly, and of course because it's a top-down structure, if they decide to do that, it could change things very fast. You know, unfortunately, instead of starting this, you know, 15 years ago, 
U.S. industry, you know, pushed and and didn't encourage, we didn't have the good sense to encourage China to go clean. And mm-hmm. so basically we, you know, we helped to create a bubble where coal just exploded in the last 15 years, and now we have to push it down. Um, but but I feel for the folks who live in China. I meet Duke students here and uh, who are from China, and they tell me you wouldn't believe how polluted the air is. Well, you see so, so many photos of, of people wearing face masks, you know, uh, just, just yeah. to walk down oh, the yeah. street. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, uh, Nancy, you're not only an energy activist, you're also a composer and musician with a fine arts degree. So how do all those fit together for you, or do they? <laughs> well, I haven't been doing enough music, and that's kind of on my list. I've got another big filing coming up, and then... Um, I want to get back and do some music, but I love music and art, and, um, you know, they're wonderful, wonderful things. In fact, I remember when I read one of your first books, Carolyn, that you recommended that that was a way through all of this, and I remember mm-hmm. feeling relieved, like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, there, there's a way through this, and it's, it's to, you know, embrace music and art and be expressive. Well, you certainly are, and we're going to hear a song now written and performed by Nancy. Uh, Nancy, would you tell us the title and give us a bit of background on this song? Yeah, the name of the song is called Restaurant Mexico, which is actually in Tempe, Arizona. It's still there. It's a great place right on Mill Avenue. I went there for years and years with my friends, many years, and... um, it's about Gentle Strength Co-op, which is a cooperative. It's gone now. It was in Tempe for about 30 years, but they went belly up. Um, and just friends and people I knew in Tempe, and just sort of it was sort of a fun, magical time. And it was about really, you know, developing community. The, the song is about community, and that's what I like about it. Okay, well, let's listen to Restaurant Mexico, uh, written and performed by Nancy La Placa. Find somebody 
was Restaurant Mexico, written and sung by our guest, Nancy LaPlaca, who's an energy activist and who tonight is educating us about the real meaning and planetary implications 
of the continued use of fossil fuel energy. I'm Carolyn Baker, and this is the Lifeboat Hour. And, Nancy, I wanted to ask you, if folks want to get in contact with you, how do they do that? Well, they can get in touch with me, Nancy, at ncwarn.org, and it stands for North Carolina, W-A-R-N.org. Um, and uh, check out the website. Uh, we've got a lot of actions going on around solar, around coal, around coal ash, energy efficiency. So, um, you know, please contact me, and happy to talk to people. Yeah, and you're also, you also have a Facebook page, or you're on Facebook, I should say. It's Nancy yes. L-A-P-L-A-C-A, Nancy LaPlaca. Well, Nancy, uh, I know that some people think that there's a difference between fossil fuels used in transportation and those used for producing electricity. So I'd like you to set us straight on this misconception. Yeah, that's something that, you know, I feel like the the Energy Information Administration reports on, you know, various, uh, they're the data collectors on energy use, and sometimes they put them together, and it's very confusing because oil is almost exclusively, it's exclusively used for transportation, cars, gasoline, trucks. Whereas if you look at electricity production, we used to have, we used to get quite a bit of electricity from oil. Thankfully, we don't, not that much anymore because it's so dirty to burn oil for electricity. But um, there's a big difference. So electricity is the use of coal, natural gas, nuclear, solar, wind, geothermal, um, there are some electric vehicles, and one of my hopes for the future is the electrification of transportation, because if you use clean energy, for example, let's say that you put solar panels up on your house and you hit an electric vehicle, you basically just got rid of a lot of your carbon footprint, a huge amount. Of course, there's a footprint from the battery and the solar panels, yes, that's true, uh, but um the mixing up transportation fuels and um, fuels for electricity, I think people do that when they want to just obscure the truth. Right. Well, uh, we were talking about coal a few minutes ago, and you know, and, and we all know it's dirty, but I, I don't think most people understand how dangerous coal extraction and consumption are, but we probably need to hear the specifics from an energy activist like you. Well, thanks. Yeah, coal, I mean, it was a real wake-up in my life when I really got educated on coal, and it's like the horrors just keep rolling. So, you know, the, the first problem with coal is that we have to burn so much of it, just staggering amounts. Something like 43% of our coal in this country comes from public lands. I remember when I was in Colorado, my friend Leslie Glustrom, who really knows an incredible amount about coal, she would go to the uh, lease, leases, the bids. Well, there was only one bidder usually, was Peabody. They'd buy coal from the government for 25 cents a ton. Then they would turn around and immediately sell it to Excel Energy for $2 a ton. Not bad, profit margin, eh? Right. And then, or they would ship it to China at that time for up to $100 a ton. So you look at coal and from from the you know, from the mining and the extraction right through the burning and the dumping of coal ash, it's just a horrific story. So not only are we, you know, using 
public lands to dig up this stuff. The mines emit huge amounts of methane. The water use of coal, because you use a lot of water to mine coal, is actually a staggering 16,000 gallons a megawatt hour. Wow. 16,000 gallons. Solar is about two or 300 for the whole life cycle. So that is just a staggering amount. Then you've got the coal, and if you look at the Powder River Basin up in Wyoming, where 40% of the country's coal comes from, they ship it as far as Georgia. Well, by the time they ship it to Georgia, 80% of the cost is transportation. If you look at our railroad system, which we should be using for people and food and goods, something like 40% of the total freight is coal. It's, it's shipping coal around. And, then and, the rest of it, the and the rest of it are the oil bomb trains, right? I know, my God, the oil <laughs> bomb trains. Oh, my gosh. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but I just had to say that. <laughs> yes, oh, my God, I know. That's really something else. I mean, when you look at our railroad system, Carolyn, it's sad that we're not really using it for what we should. James Kunstler talks about that a lot. Right, right. We are basically letting the thing go to pot. And I remember reading... Uh, complaints because when the utilities would get mad at the coal industry and they would fight and file things against each other, that's when you'd really learn about what was going on where the coal dust from the coal was eating up the rails. And so the railroad companies were trying to get the coal industry to pay for it. I mean, it just, it goes on and on. And then I wanted to talk a little bit about coal ash because especially here in North Carolina, People might remember there was a huge coal ash spill. The TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority, um, the Kingston Coal Mine, and it was a billion gallons of coal ash. When the that was just a broke, couple of years ago, wasn't it, or a year yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, the, the TVA spill was December 2008. The North Carolina spill was February of 2014. Right. So... Um, so the TVA spill, I understand when that dam broke, it was literally a 60-foot-high wall of coal ash. Oh, my God. And then, you, you should see pictures of some of these houses, Carolyn. Mm. I remember there was one picture of a White House, and it was Christmas time. It was the 23rd of December when it happened. And so you see this black line going across the house, literally cutting the outdoor reef at the door in half. Whoa. Because the coal ash was so high, and there were many homes that were abandoned. And the bottom line is, you have something like a billion tons of coal ash, which, of course, is just going to flow until it flows into a body of water. And then it destroys the body of water, and how are you going to get it out? You'll never right. get it out. It's, it's right. ruined. And then you look at and you consider that across the country there's a thousand of these coal ash ponds very few of them are lined or monitored. So in other words, we don't even know how bad it is. So here in North Carolina, we have 150 million tons of coal ash in 32 different pits, none of them lined, virtually all of them leaking into the groundwater, many times literally, you know, hundreds of yards from the drinking water source. And then you look at, there are literally thousands of individuals' wells. Because here in North Carolina, people have their own wells. Right. It's not like Colorado or Arizona. You've got your own well, even when you're not that far out of town. 
So basically, you have people who've been drinking water that has been contaminated for maybe decades. And so it's a huge mess. And as people have tried to get Duke to pay for it or do something, because the governor is a Duke Energy employee, former Duke Energy employee, who was elected with a lot of campaign cash from Duke, they did a $7 million settlement, which is almost laughably low. In fact, mm-hmm. the CEO's pay is $11 million, So, you know, $7 mm, million wow. dollar fine. And then they are absolved of liability. They are absolved of future liability. Whereas if you look at what it would cost to go into those coal ash pits and try to the best you could to actually dig this stuff up, and put it somewhere, but of course, where are you going to even put it? you want 150 million tons of coal ash, anyone? Right. That would be an estimated 10 to 15 billion with a B. Wow. So, pretty jaw-dropping, Nancy. Thank you for all those facts. I mean, we do need to have our minds blown on this one. We absolutely do, and I, I so appreciate your, your knowledge. Yeah, you know what the funny thing is, too, Carol? I remember when I realized this. All we're doing is boiling water. We're Mm -hmm. talking about a steam turbine. I mean, solar photovoltaics with the little little wire that comes out of it, it's actually converting directly to electricity. But for all these big power plants, natural gas, combined cycle, coal plants, nuclear plants, we're basically boiling water. So why do we have to do – somebody was asking me last night, what about this kind of nuclear? What about this new kind of – like, why do we have to make it so complicated to just boil water? Sure, yeah, we and can do this. You yeah, know? you were talking about nuclear a while ago, so why don't we continue that conversation? Because uh, even some people like, you know, George Monbiot, who, who writes for The Guardian and whose uh, who's perspective on the environment I really admire, is one of those strange people who's, uh, you know, crusading for, for nuclear energy. So, you know, um, I'd like to hear your perspective on this some more. Yeah, the nuclear industry, you know, when you see Fukushima, what happened, and, and your reader, your listeners may know this, but the reason it was such a disaster was because when the tsunami came in and flooded the basement, that's where the backup generators were. Right. And so because the spent fuel, which is still hot, eventually heated up the water and boiled it all off, and that's when you started having problems, mm-hmm. you've got really a really minor, insignificant, relatively insignificant thing, a diesel backup generator that basically brought down an entire nuclear site. And so it showed you just the, the, what can happen. Arnie Gunderson, Gunderson says, you can have 40 good years in one bad day. Yeah, I mean, exactly. of course, there's nuclear waste and these other things to, 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 uh, to contend with, but... Here's what they're doing now, Carolyn. In the Northeast, they have deregulated markets, which means that people buy power a day ahead. It's not a regulated monopoly utility like there is in Colorado or here in North Carolina. So you have a market where everything competes every single day on price, wind, energy efficiency, nuclear, coal. Well, coal is getting so expensive that it's dropping out fast. Gas is cheap, so everybody's burning a lot of gas. But what's happening is it because energy efficiency and wind are so cheap, they're beating out nuclear power. And mm-hmm. so these companies like Exelon are really trying to twist some arms behind the scenes 
so that they can get extra payments for their nuclear plants because they're getting beat by wind and efficiency. And this is just tragic. And so hopefully hopefully they won't be allowed to um, drastically reduce efficiency. But the nuclear energy industry, once too cheap to meter, as they used to say, certainly isn't anymore. And no one's financing it. And if you look at the plants that have gone up in the country, my friends in solar express amazement that Georgia passed some really good solar laws. And to me, it's not that big of a surprise. And the reason is because they built a nuclear plant there, a recent addition to a plant called Plant Vogel, V-O-G-T-L-E. They got $8 billion in federal loan guarantees. Eight billion with a B. Mm, it's wow. way over budget and way, uh, way, way, totally not on schedule. Now, what's totally crazy about this is because it's been so expensive so far, people in Georgia and the same thing's happening in Florida have to pay for these plants up front. So as the price tag keeps going up and it gets pushed out more and more, people are literally spending, you know, five, eight, ten dollars a month. For a nuclear power plant that will never that, that may never come online mm. now if you compare that to solar the average amount that clean energy adds to a utility bill is 1.6 percent wow so this is the tragedy too carolyn is that oh, yeah they love to push this meme that oh clean energy is expensive no it's not in a place like colorado which has really good wind it's two and a half cents a kilowatt hour yeah or less yeah. You know, and so basically, they're because they're not able to win anymore on price. They're out there basically twisting arms, and that's why I would make an appeal to your listeners to get involved. Find a group in your state that's good and help them. North Carolina, NC Warren, Climate Voice of U.S., Colorado. There's Clean Energy Action. I mean, there's 350. There's all kinds of groups. Just get involved, but. It's time because if we don't ask them, if we don't demand change, it's just simply not going to happen. Right. And so then we come to natural gas, which is being touted as a quote-unquote clean form of energy. And, of course, we know that the fracking process is anything but clean in terms of the water and air pollution it produces. Tell us more about natural gas, if you would. Yeah, Carolyn, you probably see it up close and personal with all those fracking wells. I well, remember we do, when but I started. A lot of those fracking wells are are just you know they're going uh, they're they're being abandoned. So, and, and I'm going to ask you a little bit about the whole energy landscape in a moment. But but tell us about natural gas. Yeah, natural gas is an interesting beast, and shale, this hydraulic fracturing or fracking, yeah, yeah, as it's called, is you know it it went from a, a very small percentage of our natural gas 15 years ago to being 40 to 50% now. But the problem with this hydraulic fracturing and this shale gas is that the wells deplete very quickly. Mm-hmm. They're very expensive to drill. They use a lot of water, and they play out fast. And so you have this interesting phenomenon right now where they the Companies that sell gas overstate their reserves. So that's their future supplies. The oil industry does the same thing. 
They overstate their reserves to keep their stock prices high. They make money on the land deals and the mergers. And if you look at a study by Deborah Lawrence Rogers and David Hughes and Art Berman and all other kinds of people, Richard Heinberg, as you know, mm-hmm. basically we're, they're selling the commodity for below the cost of production, which means mm. sooner or later everybody's going to go belly up. Right. And and then you've got Wall Street making deals, and you've got you've got basically an unsustainable situation where experts like David Hughes and others are saying that we could start running, you know, the, the curve, the production curve on shale gas in this country, which is 40% of our supply, maybe 50 even sometimes, could peak out between 2016 and 2020. Mm-hmm. And if indeed that's the case, when you have these really high depletion rates, 85% in the first three years, on average, 85%. We're looking at a future where we're putting all of our eggs in one basket. And then there's the methane. And because methane, CH4, is so reactive, over a 10-year period, it's 100x of CO2. And over a 20-year period, it's 86x. So basically, there's no climate benefit. And in fact, the folks that I read, the scientists, Robert Howard's, there's lots of good ones now, more and more people are piling on, say that it's four times worse than coal in terms of climate. So what we're doing as a bridge to the future, a bridge to renewables, is actually, as some people call it, a gangplank. And the other problem with it is that we're not investing in renewables. Right, a bridge to what? A bridge yeah. to what exactly? Yeah. yeah, they just want to. You know, honestly, Carolyn, they just want to build the bridge, make ten percent in the bridge, and you know, run off to San Diego and you know, have my ties or something. Well, you know, exactly. That's, yeah, that's exactly what has happened. And um, you know, Williston, North Dakota, the big uh, Bach and shale boom. Well, that town is you know bordering on being a ghost town now. It was it was the boom of shale gas and. And here in Colorado, a lot of these wells are just being abandoned, and and the whole thing is is just such a huge flash in the pan, you know. Like get the quick money and go off and have my ties, as you say. Um, and and so I'd like to ask you. I had Richard Heinberg on about two three months ago, and I'd like to ask you if you'd just kind of give us a a condensed version of what you see on the whole energy landscape right now. What's happening in terms of, you know. The the oil depletion and the lower prices and all of that. I'd like to hear what's happening from your perspective, your eyes. Yeah, thanks, Carolyn. You know, I think we're at a really interesting crossroads right now. And the crossroads is that right now, because we're losing, we may lose the solar investment tax credit at the end of 2016, which is a 30% federal tax credit, and here in North Carolina, we were not able to extend our 35% state tax credit. The solar industry here, for example, we put up 1,000 megawatts last year, and we have about 1,000 megawatts already. It's going to die. The question is, how far will it crash? I mean, that's going to be probably what's going to happen. Uh, of course, we won't know till it happens, but 
we are at a real difficult place because even though people want clean energy in every state, it pulls like off the charts. Right. Because the regulators are appointed often by the governors who get a lot of money from the utilities, or if you look at the example of Arizona where the commissioners are elected, the utilities dump money in those elections. And so you end up with these really, you know, sort of jaw-dropping situations where you've got Arizona, a state like Arizona, killing solar because the utilities are electing anti-solar commissioners. Um, And so the energy landscape, I think, this is going to be a rough year for those of us working for change, I think. But we Mm -hmm. just have to soldier on. And I think people are going to wake up and realize it. And if you look at fracking, it wasn't that long ago that no one even heard the word fracking. Right. That phenomenon took off like a rocket. And so I'm really hoping the same thing will happen with clean energy. Well, you know, you know ter- with, go ahead. <laughs> sorry. In terms of depletion, I think if you look at the curves and you look what's going on, there was an interesting article in Resilience just a couple of days ago where they showed that Norway's shale gas, they are downgrading the, the reserves. Mm-hmm. They're realizing that it's coming faster than they thought. And, so, and because they're the second largest gas supplier to Europe, people are going to be sitting up and taking notice about that. So yeah. we, we're in a really interesting point, and I kind of am afraid of the day where we run out of fossil fuels. I have to admit that. I, and I, I'm hoping that we can put in place enough good ideas that we can keep the good, to that we can maximize the good and minimize the bad. Well, you know, with your amazing research in our face, we now know that the only clean energy uh, alternatives are solar and wind. And, and yet, just in case that isn't absolutely clear, please dispel our doubts, Nancy. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, when you look at solar, all of the benefits, local, local jobs, you know, no fuel, there's, there's no contest. I mean, as you know and many of your guests have said, we're moving from a very, very energy-dense present to a less energy-dense future. But just because I run my house on, you know, on X amount of energy doesn't mean I can't cut it by 40% just by paying attention and trying and, you know, doing things that will save energy. Um, And ultimately I have to say that it's about building our local community and working together. And just like, you know, Naomi Klein is looking at climate change in terms of maybe this is an opportunity for us to, you know, rethink capitalism I think clean energy is an opportunity to to rethink that also on a smaller scale. So what's the problem, and why has it been so difficult to change our mentality about solar and wind, besides the utility companies? <laughs> you know, it's been difficult because they're so powerful. I, I saw a study, I saw a report. It was the Edison Electric Institute, which is the trade group that represents all the investor-owned utilities, Duke, Arizona Public Service Company, Excel, et cetera, et cetera. And they reported that the entire electricity industry, which I'm assuming must include the pipeline companies, you know, Alstom, GE, the guys who make the big equipment and the 
the turbines, and et cetera, $910 billion a year. And I know that we sell $400 billion worth of electricity a year. Um, but when you consider that $910 billion a year, that's almost a trillion dollars. Our entire economy is $16 trillion. Mm. So you see that we're up against some powerful forces. And, and speaking of those numbers, Carolyn, I want to tell you one that's really kind of astounding. If you look at the amount of coal that utilities buy every year, it's about $40 billion worth, 40 billion. Mm. Right. They turn that into about $160 billion worth of electricity, which does about $530 billion worth of damage. Mm. So the mm. first rule of whole is quit digging. Right. You know, and you've got an industry that is very well connected politically. It's not that expensive for them to go contribute to every legislator out there, take over the legislature, take over the governors, and then unfortunately – You've got a situation where, quite honestly, you have regulators appointed that don't even really know much. This is a very complex industry with that, that people who put decades of their lives into this, they, they make it purposely complicated, I think. And so you have regulators that are appointed who don't know much, who are clueless about the industry, and unless they care to go figure it out, we have a situation, unfortunately, where the regulators are captured very often by the regulate, by the people that they regulate. Right. Yeah, and then we have the situation here in Colorado where we had the awful um, Animus River spill from mining waste this last year that was actually caused by the EPA. And uh, I spoke with someone recently from Durango who said, uh, well, you know, it's it's all gone, it's over, it's, you know, it's all clean now. And, and I'm noticing, Nancy, you know, in so much coverage of these disastrous spills of all kinds, you know, it seems like the time between the tragedy and when people say, oh, everything's fine now, is growing shorter and shorter. Do you see that at all? Yeah, I think it's, you know, honestly, Carolyn, I think that we are in denial as a society, and that was a very difficult thing for me to accept. Mm -hmm. And honestly, your books helped me to accept that. But I think that the truth is that these are complicated, difficult issues that most people would just rather not think about. Right, but that the bottom line is we're leaving a disaster, you know, for our children, and you know it amazes me that anyone could live near a coal ash dump and not realize how toxic that is. But you know, a lot of this stuff is under the radar. And I know when I first started this work in 2006, you had to dig for information. Dig. Right. Now right. there is so much data coming at me every day. I just have to stop and breathe. Right. Because every single day I learn at least one thing that I could put into some report or some filing or some docket or something. And it just keeps coming at you faster and faster. You know. So those of us who are working on it, honestly it's 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 difficult because it, it is difficult news. It's 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 sad, it's heartbreaking to watch our ecosystems just get just, you know, hammered. 
That's absolutely right. And uh, I really want to thank you for what you teach me every time I listen to you in situations like this, uh, talking about energy. So I want to thank you so much, Nancy LaPlaca, for coming back to the Lifeboat Hour to give us this very thorough and sobering education on fossil fuels and climate catastrophe. I, I thank you so much. Carolyn, thank you so much, and uh, look forward to seeing you. Likewise, and thank you all listeners for listening, and we'll be back again next week with Charles Eisenstein. Until then, take care. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody.